Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. How many of you are glad that we're inside and not outside right now? Yeah? I had a football game with my son yesterday, and the rain wasn't going sideways. It was going parallel to the ground. It was pretty impressive. You ever coach a sporting event in Oregon, and you get done with the game, and you look down, and you look like your fingers, and they're pruny like you've been in a pool. That's what we experienced yesterday. Purple pruny hands. If you would turn to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to continue our look at the Sermon on the Mount. We're in verse 43 today. And as we get started, I want to tell you guys a story. This is a story about some Christians in the catacombs in Rome. If you're not familiar with that, the catacombs was the place where they buried dead bodies under the city of Rome. It also was the place where Christians hid. And so this is a story of the time when Christians were being persecuted. And it goes like this. A rich man named Proculus had hundreds of slaves. Not slaves like we have here in in the United States based on race. This was based on either a conquering country or being sold into slavery because you owe money. Proculus had hundreds and hundreds of slaves. He had one slave, though. His name was Paulus. Paulus was so trustworthy that Proculus made him in charge of the whole household and all the slaves. One day, Proculus took Paulus with him to a slave market to buy some more workers. Before the bargaining began, the two men walked through all the slaves to assess them. Among the slaves stood a weak old man, barely able to stand. By far the least, the worst slave of the bunch. Paulus went to his owner and said, Master, we've got to buy this man. Proculus said, This guy's worthless. Look at him. He he can't do anything. Paulus insisted, go ahead, buy him. I promise you, he's cheap. The work will not drop off. You will get all the work done if you buy this man. So Proculus agreed. He said, Paulus, I don't know what you're doing, but we'll buy this elderly slave. And Paulus made good on his word. The work went better than ever. Proculus, though, observed something. He observed that Paulus was doing double the work. As a matter of fact, the old man never worked. Paulus cared for him. Paulus refused to let him work and instead gave him the best food and made him rest all the time. So Proculus was curious. He goes up to Paulus and he says, who is this slave? You know I value you, Paulus, but I don't, I don't mind that you're protecting this guy, but Why? Why are you protecting this guy? And the answer is, at the end of the sermon. So you're going to have to wait. So as we get into this sermon today, the, 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 the place where we're at is we're at the sixth antithesis. This is the, the, the sixth statement where Jesus starts off and says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. So he's done this six times, quoting the Old Testament, actually not even quoting the Old Testament sometimes, quoting the teachers of the law and saying, you're getting it wrong. You got it wrong. Jesus is going to tell us how to get it right. I I came across a quote this week. Um, C.S. Lewis one time was was confronted by a critic who said, you know, C.S. Lewis, you don't have any love for the Sermon on the Mount. As a matter of fact, I don't think you like the Sermon on the Mount. And C.S. Lewis said, well, as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for it means liking it and enjoying it, I suppose no one can care for it. 
Because, I mean, who can handle, who likes being knocked flat on their face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine anyone, anything more deadly to a spiritual condition than to enjoy Jesus' calling us out in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think that's what we need to get here, is as we're going through this, there is a part of this that is encouraging, and we're to go, yes, you know, this is our Savior, and this is what He's teaching us. But some of this, like C.S. Lewis says, is a sledgehammer to the face, because we recognize we're not where we're supposed to be. But the good news is, Jesus commands and He equips. He doesn't just command and leave us there and say, oh yeah, go, good luck on getting that to work. Instead, he says, this is what I demand of you, and I'm going to provide the help to do it. And the Sermon on the Mount is helping us see the evidence of what the Lord should be doing in our hearts on a daily basis. So our big idea today is because kingdom citizens have experienced the love of God through Christ, we can be freed to love our enemies. Because kingdom citizens have experienced the love of Christ, love of God through Christ, we can be freed to love our enemies. Now, each of these words means something. So it's not just being a member of a church. It's not just saying I'm a Christian. It's being an actual citizen of the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus is the king of this country, and we are to be a part of his realm. And these kingdom citizens have experienced the love of God. We've felt it. We've bathed in it. We are basking in the love of God that we get through Jesus Christ. And because of that love, we are then freed up to love our enemies. We're freed up to love our enemies, which is the opposite of the way the world thinks. We should be freed up to hate them even more. But that's not what he says. He says, I'm going to free you up. You don't need to worry about your enemies earning your love. I am going to love you in a manner so that now you can be free to love those who are out to get you. See, this is similar to what we talked about last week when we talked about people striking you on one cheek and that was an honor thing and taking your possessions and your time and your focus away. These were people that were just selfish to themselves. This group this week, these are the people that actually want to see you hurt. It's not just that they want more of their stuff. They want their own honor. Instead, they're saying, I want you gone. I hate you. They harbor malice towards us. And I would say in our culture, in our world right now, there's no shortage of enemies. Seems like social media and regular media foments the tribalism and the fighting amongst each other. And some of you may say, well, okay, but yeah, I don't have any enemies. I don't have any enemies. And I think that's a natural thing. If you've been in church for any amount of time, you've heard we're supposed to love our enemies. You've heard the message of this passage. And so instead of going, well, I, I, I love my enemies, we go, no, no, I don't have any enemies. I just, I, I don't have any enemies. But I have all these neighbors and some I love and some I don't really like very much or maybe even hate, but they're not enemies. So you're, you see how we kind of want to do the Pharisee thing, don't we? We want to find the little loophole and the way through. So I challenge you on this. Who angers you? Whose name that if I blurted out right now, half of you would get red in the face and you'd be like, oh, I can't stand that person that woman, that man. How about a politician? How about an actor? How about a newscaster? How about someone who lives down the street who does fill in the blank? Those people that, that aggravate us and anger us to the point where like, oh, just those are our enemies. Those are the ones 
that we. Now, whether they're out to get us or not, that's debatable. Sometimes it looks like they're really out to get us. But the point is not so much what they're doing. Well, actually, the point is not what they're doing at all. It's about our response to our enemies. So how are we to respond? Well, here's the traditional teaching from verse 43. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and you shall hate your enemy. So the first word we got to look at is this word love. This is the word agape. This is a very notoriously hard word to get our minds wrapped around, especially in the Bible. This is a word that's used very, very commonly in the Bible. Jesus says we're to love this way, but he says this is the way God loves. So this is God-like love. This is God, God's style of loving. So we see this passage, you shall love your neighbor. This is a direct quote from Leviticus 19, verse 18. This is straight out of the Bible. But unlike the other antithesis that we saw before, there's an addition. And the addition is not in the Bible, and it is hate your enemy. So what the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and all these guys were teaching was love your neighbor and hate everybody who's not. Hate your enemy. Hate those who are against you. But this hate part was not directly from the Bible. What they had done is they had inferred it from a whole slew of passages. Deuteronomy 7.2, Deuteronomy 30, verse 7, Psalm 26.5, which says, hate the assembly of evildoers. Psalm 139.21, this idea of hating those who are against God. Well, my neighbors are not against God, but everybody else is, so love my neighbors, hate all of those who are not. See, the Pharisees and scribes had turned this love command into permission to hate others. The rationale is, they're not a part of my neighborhood, so therefore, I don't have to like them. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, the words, hate your enemy, were a parasitical growth on this commandment that has no business being there. I like that. See, God did not teach his people a double standard, love those who are like you, hate those who are against you. Instead, he says, it needs to all be together. And at this point, if Jesus paused here, we don't know if he paused and just kind of let people go, yeah, yeah, I've heard that. This would have been not controversial even a little bit. This was what the Jewish people at this time believed and his disciples. However, they're forgetting that there's places throughout the Old Testament that says we're to love our enemies. Let me give you an example. Exodus 23. Exodus 23 says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under a burden, you shall refrain from leaving with it, him with it, and you shall rescue it with him to take the burden off the donkey. What a, what a picture. Now, I could see while well, you're going, I don't, my neighbor doesn't have a donkey, so I don't have to do this. There's no oxes in my neighborhood, so I don't... Okay, that, that's not the point, and that's what we're seeing throughout the Old Testament is it's about care for the enemy, even if the enemy's out to get you, and they may spit on you and throw things at you when you bring the donkey back to them. See, these antitheses that Jesus is saying are all about our actions, our heart in response to what people do to us. And this one is the most outlandish to the Jewish audience. For the main reason is, is that if you go through all the other five, that you could find a rabbi here or there that taught, yeah, we should probably do that. But nobody at this point in Jewish culture, with all the documents we have, there's not a single rabbi who's going, you know, we really should love these Romans more. 
You know, they're oppressing us and they're killing us and they're torturing us and crucifying us. We should love them. Let's just love them more. That was not the perspective. You know, and and it's easy to be kind of hard on the Pharisees in this. But at the same time, we do this, right? It's easy for us to hate what hurts what we love. So if we do have a neighborhood, we have neighbors that we care for, and we have people outside that are hurting them, it's normal to react with resentment and pushing them away. But we're not allowed to hate. And as a matter of fact, we need to respond in love. See, sin is anything that opposes God. And so the, the, the Pharisees had it sort of almost right. We are to hate the things that resist God, but not the person, not the people. Instead, it's the actions in response. See, that's where we struggle. We struggle with separating the hate for what people do from the person. And a lot of times, if we're honest, we're very selfish. And it. it's, it's, it's a sin against me that I'm really upset about. We might couch it in, oh yeah, they're doing this against God because I'm God's chosen person. I'm one of his family, so therefore it's against God. Yes, I can hate it. And we do this little math in our heads trying to figure out whether I can hate this person or not. And what Jesus is saying is, no, you don't get to hate the person. You can hate the thing they've done. That's well, you're well within that. But the person is not to be hated. The person is not to be resisted. The person is not to be your enemy. Instead, he's to be the one that you love. So here's Jesus' correction, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So now we got to dig into that word love, that that agape word. It's that word that, again, it's God-sized love. Good way to understand this is love in spite of, not because of. I love you in spite of what you do to me, not because of what you've done to me. This love is freeing because now I don't need to wait till you do something that I like for me to have the green light to love you. I have the green light to love you no matter what you've done. And no matter how bad you've been, I can still love you. See, there's freedom here. This is unconditional love. We don't have to wait on them to do loving things to us for us to love them. This unconditional love is very foreign to our world. This is so foreign that the world cannot even grasp it. Love is an affection for another's good. Love is saying, I will not settle for anything else other than loving you and pointing you to God because your ultimate good is God. Every single one of us, the thing that we need more than anything else is God. And when we love our enemies, we are doing the kind of love that God did for us. He did that for us while we were still sinners. He loved us. He died for us. We love our parents, our friends, our spouses, and our enemies best when we point them to the love of God. And they can't see it if we're hating them. They can't see it if we're not loving them. So we're held to this standard. We're to love the way God loves. You know, because His love is amazing, isn't it? This suffering that He did. He suffered and died for us. He died for the repugnant. Do we get that? The sin is so repugnant to God, he's not going to be in its presence. And he says, they make a habit. The, good, the thing that we're all good at, that we're all varsity level, all pro, is sinning. And we do that, and we are repulsive to God. And he goes, I'll go get them. Look at Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, not we repented, 
not we're the best of the bunch, while we were repugnant, repulsive, disgusting, Christ died for us. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved from, by Him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now will be reconciled shall we be by His life. So He came to us, He saw us as enemies, and He said, I'm going to die for them. I'm going to love them. That's the love that we are to have. So what does this love that God is putting out here look like? Well, the first one thing we see is that this love is 100% God-centered. This provides us a picture. Our love is to be God-centered. And the way we are loving God-centeredly is to love like He does, which is love others more than we love ourselves. You know, God is, the second thing we see is that God is the only supreme being. He cannot be too sinfully focused on Himself. For us, when we stop back, step out and we say, well, I'm the best, that's a lie. When God says I'm the best, he's telling the truth about himself. And so when we point people to God through the love that we extend to them, we are making God look as glorious as he is. And then third, why does God love us? Is it because there's something in us that's lovable? Logically, that's impossible. He created us and gave us everything. So when God loves us, He is loving the fact that He made us, that He has made us in His image. See, we're image bearers, and what that means is we're all mirrors. Every single one of us is a reflection of what God is like. Yes, even those who do not know Him. The people that are walking around in our country, in our neighborhood, who have nothing to do with God, the most staunch atheist, is a cracked mirror, and yes, there's a little glimmer of what God looks like in them. A tiny bit, but that mirror is fractured, and it's only this little bit of a reflection. When Christ comes into our lives, He begins fixing those cracks in the mirror, and we begin looking more and more like Him. That's what it means to be made in His image. We look like our God. And the way we look like our God is we love like our God. God loves every single one of us because He beholds in us His handiwork. He knit us together in our mother's wombs. He put us together. He put us in the spot that we're in now. It's so easy for us to complain and be upset about the spot that we find ourselves in right now. But this is where God has us and He has a plan and He is working And we are to reflect that to the people around us. See, God's love is God-centered. That means we burn to see His character and glory expressed everywhere. Every single thing is to point back to God. Pleasure and delight in Him, in the gift of His love, overflowing to those around us. Now, I know the word love, you know, we have lots of different ways we use it. No different from this time in Jesus' time. There were four main words that were used for love. The first one was eros. This is where we get the word erotic. It means romantic or sexual love. This word is never used for God's love in the Bible. Not once. The second word is storge, which is a word that means familial love, like family love. This could have been used in the Bible, but it wasn't used, not even once. Then there's the word phileo, which is where we get philanthropy, the love of man, philharmonic, the love of music, Anglophile, person who loves England, and Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. This is a strong affection 
This is also not used for God's love for us. Instead, agape is the word. This word agape is love with no variableness. My love doesn't increase by what you've done or decrease by what you've done. You might say that this is love for no reason at all or love even when there's ample reason to not love. This is the love that God extends to us, this agape love. See, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. It's unconditional. Little boy asked his dad, Daddy, how does God love us? Son, God loves us with unconditional love. Little boy thought for a second, well, what, what does that mean, Dad? So the dad sat there for a second. He said, well, do you remember the two boys that lived next door to us and how they got a brand new cute little puppy for Christmas? The little boy says, yeah, I remember. He goes, do you remember how those two boys used to tease it and hit it with sticks and throw things at it and call it names? And the boy went, yeah, I remember that. He goes, do you also remember how when the boys would leave and come back, the puppy would wag its tail like it was going to wag it off and lick their faces and jump up on them and excited to see them? And the little boy said, yeah. His dad goes, that's unconditional love. They didn't deserve the love that that puppy gave them, but yet the puppy loved him anyways. So the father then made his point. He said, God loves us unconditionally. Men threw rocks at his son, Jesus. They beat him with sticks. As a matter of fact, they murdered him. And when they murdered him, Jesus loved him anyways. This is the love that we are to have. Notice it says, pray for those who persecute you. This is the word that means they're coming for you. This isn't just they bear animosity in their minds. It's they're actively coming after you. This is the sort of love that Christ calls us to engage in. It's active love. It's love that engages the will. To love is to act in a manner that helps and focuses on the actions of the other. See, contrary to what most of the songs that we hear on the radio, love is not a feeling. Love is a choice. It's a matter of will. And because it's a matter of will and not feelings, it is always possible that we can express love in actions. We can do this whether we feel like it or not. So we're to love in actions, like the Good Samaritan story. We're to love in words, like Jesus had told us earlier, bless those who curse you. But we're also to love our enemies with our prayers. It says, love your enemies and pray for those. These are not two separate commands. Instead, the love is fulfilled by prayer. The prayer is the extension. It's the fulfillment of the call to love. D.A. Carson writes, the more you love, the more you'll pray. The more you pray, the more you love. The connection between love and prayer calls into question our view of enemies and whether or not we can be passionately for them or against them. Paul commands us that we are to show genuinely brotherly affection and love, like in Romans 12, 9. We are to love them emotionally. It's clear that our enemies are a good barometer of where we're at with our Lord, isn't it? If our, if our love for enemies is not there, then we need to go, have I really felt that love that God has extended to me? But here's the good news on top of the good news, is that agape love is miraculous. And amen, we've got a God that works in miracles. 
Because ultimately, it's not about having a mindset. And I know that's where we all want to go. We want to go, okay, Pastor John, give me five steps to show agape love or, or three or four words to meditate on. That's not how this works. That's not how agape love gets in here. Agape love is not, oh, I love them, but I don't like them very much. Instead, agape love is us allowing God to work on our hearts to show how much he loves us so that it overflows and spills out into everyone, and yes, including our enemies. Love is a decision. It's a commitment. It's an action. It's not just a feeling. Spurgeon writes, he who does not love sinners cannot pray for them rightly. When we love sinners, then the prayer is fervent. When we love Jesus, then the prayer is earnest and it's on fire with the flaming torch of his power. I love that. It's not just enough just to love. It's not just enough to pray. But with those two together, all of a sudden the prayers have power. The prayers are fire. Dietrich Bonhoeffer who many of you know, he resisted the Nazis and he wrote the book, The Cost of Discipleship, where he talks about how to do this. He says, this is the supreme command. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, we stand at his side, and we plead to the Father on his behalf. Imagine what that would look like in our world today, where the Christians, instead of resisting and 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 blowing up on somebody on Twitter or, or talking about how bad they were, we went and we stood beside them in prayer and said, let's go to the Father together. Oh, I hate you. That, I get that, but I'm praying for you nonetheless. Revolutionary. We are to love the enemies themselves. Not love what they've done. Not love what they've done to us. Not love their personality. We're to love them at the core of their being because when we love... Our enemies, just like God is seeing the image of himself in each and every one of us, we are loving what God created and we are loving God by loving our neighbor and loving our enemies because we are loving the image right there. So Jesus doesn't just leave us here and say, okay, go do that. He gives us some reasons and he gives us four reasons. Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Don't get hung up on the language here. He was only talking to guys at the time. So you are children of your Father in heaven. So the first reason is because we are children of the Father. Like father, like child. This focus is not on attaining the relationship. It's you already are a part of it. Our translations just really struggle with how to get this all worded correctly. But what this means in essence is be like the child that you already are. You're like, well, but that's not what that verse says. Look at Matthew 5.16, which came a few verses before. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may be seen your good works and give glory to your, your Father who is in heaven. See, Jesus already says, He's your Father. You've already been adopted in. You're a part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. You are kingdom citizens. You're there. All Jesus is saying is, this makes you act like it. You look like you belong to my kingdom. This passage is not about telling us how to get into the kingdom, but how we react because we are in the kingdom. If you love your enemies the way God loves his enemies, then you show that you are the child of God. This proves you've been born again. One of the things Jesus is doing throughout this is he's doing two things. He's saying, here's where you need to be, and if you're not there, check yourself, and I'll help you get there. But you need to be honest with yourself. Do I love my enemies? 
Do I only love those who are like me? Do I only love those who are in my tribe? Or do I love my enemies? Do I pray for my enemies? I know we've got prayer warriors in here who pray all the time for everybody in this room. But how about the people that are the enemies of the people in this room? Are we praying? See, we have an intimacy with God here, and this is what he's talking about. We are like a child with a parent. How amazing is that, that that God that created the universe has a relationship with us, and it deepens by loving like he does. And to think about it, Jesus' own son on the cross, what does he pray? He doesn't mock them. He doesn't put them down. You only knew what you were doing. He says, Lord, forgive them. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He prays for those who are actively murdering him, and that's the picture of how we're to be. The next thing we see, verse 45, the second part of 45, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So the second reason why we are to love our enemies is because God is gracious to all. And we are to be like our Father and be gracious to all. I love the message translation. It says, God gives his best to everyone regardless of who they are. This is common grace. This is the idea that God sends rain on everyone like we saw yesterday, amen? It's not like, hey, the Christians, they got rain on their fields and the non-Christians, they have no rain over here. No, it's rain for everybody. And yes, sometimes even sun for everybody. And when that is, that's God's grace because, again, He is loving the image, uh, loving what He has made in every single one of us. This idea of the just and the unjust just means righteous and unrighteous. John Piper writes, If you are His, then His character is in you. You will be inclined to do what He does. God loves His enemies, the evil and the unrighteous, in sending rain and sunshine instead of instant judgment. See, the world's way doesn't work this way. The world's way is, you know, I'm only going to look out for me. I'm only going to take care of what I want. Instead, the kingdom citizens say, no, I love you in spite. The Father shows His love to His enemies every day with the sun and the rain. He has every right to retaliate. They are an offense to him. They are repugnant. But instead, he says, no, I'm going to love them. I'm giving them a chance. God withholding his judgment, our world gets it wrong. They think it means there is no God. But what it means is it means that the God that they are in active rebellion against loves them and is gracious in saying, I don't want any to perish, but I want all to come to a saving faith. And we are to love that same way. We're love in spite of, not because of. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So what Jesus is saying here is, you can do better than the status quo. You can do better than the world's way. You can do better than the you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. This self-serving pragmatism where I only do good things because I know good things are going to come to me. A few years ago, there was a a movie and a a bunch of television commercials about paying it forward. You guys remember that? It was the idea of, I'm going to do something nice to this person, and then that guy's going to see that I did something nice, and they'll do something nice. And in the commercial, it worked its way all the way back around so that I got something nice done to me. See, our world can't even talk about doing something altruistic for no reason other than to be nice without saying, yeah, and if you're nice, you're going to get niceness back to you. See, that's how our world works. 
I'm only going to do it if it meets my needs, not if it meets the needs of the other. And the tax collectors were a great example of this. Tax collectors being brought out here would have been stunning. There were jaws dropping open. As you know, the tax collectors were licensed robbers. They had the power of the Roman Empire behind them. They would farm out the tax collecting to local Jews who would then have the ability to go, you know what, I want a little more money. And they couldn't say no to them. Licensed robbers. He says, that's what you're like if you just love those who love you. Then he goes into the Gentiles. These Gentiles were outside of God's family. As a matter of fact, some rabbis debated whether it was okay to save a Gentile from drowning. Because if you saved them, they might have more kids and there'd be more Gentiles and they're the enemy, so let's let them drown. What a way to look at a fellow image bearer of God. They're only fit for destruction. Ultimately, we are to treat them as image bearers, not as enemies. And then finally, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So this kind of returns to what we saw at the beginning. He says, bear a family resemblance. Look like your Father in heaven. You should look like your Father in heaven. This word perfect is, uh, is an interesting word. It means complete or whole or mature. This really, verse 48, is kind of a summary of the whole chapter 5. This is the the culmination of where we've been working to. It's an echo of the Old Testament where it says, you must be holy as God is holy. One author writes, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. And this is where we're at. The world says, just get along, be tolerant. Jesus goes, no, that's not high enough. we got to go up here. No, love love them. Put them ahead of yourselves. Not just tolerate, not just accept, not just say you're for them, but love them. Our world has no way to do this. And this is what we are doing. There was a man by the name of Tom Skinner who was a member of a gang in Harlem. He was a black man. He became a believer. And when he became a believer, it changed everything about him. He was in high school and he was playing football. And so he uh, was an offensive lineman, and he blocked a defender onto the ground, and the defender was a white boy, and, and the, the, Tom started to walk away, and the white boy came up, and he punched him in the back and threw him on the ground and kicked on him and spit on him and called him all sorts of names. And Tom stood up and said, because of Jesus, I love you anyways, and went back to the huddle. After the game, the boy who had punched him and kicked him and said racial slurs at him, went up to him and said, Tom, you have done more to knock prejudice out of me by telling me you loved me than socking me in the face. We are to overcome evil with good. Now, we've, there's plenty of stories like this. And I had to pick and choose so many stories of loving your enemy. And many of the ones we find have good, happy endings. But notice here, Jesus doesn't say, love your enemy so they'll be your best buddy in the future. He says, love your enemy because I've loved you, which is inherent in the word agape. He's not promising us that if we love our enemy, that we're going to be best buds. There's a reason why those stories stick with us, because they're rare. They're few and far between. But our allegiance is to our king because we are kingdom citizens if we're in Christ. And so we do it unto the king not to get that. And if he gives that, that's just extra grace he's extending. This idea of being perfect is not meant to say you got to be absolutely right every single time, but it's giving us a picture of where we're going. 
In 2 Timothy 1.9 and Ephesians 1.3, it says, you must be wholly blameless, which is another way of saying perfect. See, this is the place we're going and the process that we're in. We are in the process of being made perfect. It's called sanctification, where we're made more and more like Christ. And if we're in Christ, we're never stagnant. We're not in one place. We're moving to be more and more like Him. And one day, we will be like Him. We will be perfect. This is the conclusion of what it means to be called sons of God from Matthew 5.9. This is what we are to look like. I have to go back to Lewis again. He, he was saying, people have a problem with this be perfect. Kind of like, unless you're perfect, I won't help you. And therefore, we can't be perfect, so it's hopeless, right? This is not what Jesus meant. What he's saying is, I will help you be perfect. You may want something less, but I'm only going to give you perfection. And he used this story. He said, when he was a kid, he had a toothache. And he knew that if he told his mom that he had a toothache, he'd have to go to the dentist. He'd be like, well, that doesn't make any sense. You want the pain to go away. But he says, I know that if I go to the dentist, the dentist isn't going to stop with that one tooth. He's going to fix all of them. And that's the way God is. And praise the Lord that that's the way he is, is that when he steps into our life, he doesn't just want to refurbish the room of over here. He wants to refurbish the whole thing. See, that's what we want. So many people that go to church on Sunday mornings, they screwed up during the week and they want absolution. They want freedom from that guilt. Or they've reached rock bottom and so they come to church and they go, God, fix this small problem I have. Fix this problem over here. And God goes, no, that's not going to work for me. I don't want to just fix that problem. I want to fix all of you. I want to make you perfect. And that's the progression that we're set for. And that's the progression we should be feeling. But praise be to God that Christ was perfect on our behalf. So we don't have to be perfect in this life, but we can progress towards that as we get closer to heaven. So let's return to that story at the beginning. Proculus and his servant Paulus. So Proculus says, Who is this slave? I value you. Who is this old man? Is he your father? Paulus goes, Nope. It's someone I owe more than my father. Proculus goes, well, it must be your teacher then, right? Paulus, nope. Somebody to whom I owe even more than this teacher. Proculus goes, who then? Paulus says, he's my enemy. Your enemy, he says. And we expected that. But listen to what Paulus says. Yes, this is the man who killed my father and mother and sold me and my sisters as slaves. Proculus stood there speechless. Paulus says, As for me, I am a disciple of Christ, who has taught me to love my enemies and to reward their evil with good. Paulus spent the rest of that man's life caring for that man and not letting him work a single day. That's not the kind of love that comes from an inspirational preacher telling you to love people. That's not the kind of love that comes from a five-step process from somebody saying, this is how you do it. That's the kind of love that comes from a renewed heart where Christ is residing in your heart. The love that God gave us was not because we were delightful. Not because we were the best. Not because he had to. No, he loved us when we were far from him. He chose to die for us and being an enemy to being a family. So this is the love that's offered you. If this is new to you, this is the love that God extends to you. And I pray that you would make that commitment to to just revel in that love. 
For those of us that already knew that God loved us this way, it's a challenge to go, where am I not letting the Lord's love spill out of me? See, we have to remember 1 John 4, 9, 419. We love because He first loved us. So the love that we have is a reciprocation. It's an overflow of the love that He gave us first. For all the ways that the word love is used, any real experience of agape love is a treasure beyond counting. Those who truly love not only know God, but they show they are known and loved by God. I love what one author writes. He said, the love that God empowers is the greatest privilege on earth. When we love one another, God is pressing the wonders. I love this. He's pressing the wonders of his heart, his love, into the cracks and the corners of his kingdom, into our families, into our churches, into our neighborhoods. I love that. He's pressing his love into us so much that it's inside of us. It just can't help but come out because he's going to make us perfect that way. When we walk in love, we gain not only more of God's love, but we gain more of God. We love because he first loved us. There's a thing such as natural love, and we have that. We see that all over the world. People loving people that are like them. People loving people that are nice to them. But this divine love is in short supply. We do not create it, nor do we have the power to express it. It only comes from God. Augustine said, He who is filled with agape love is filled with God Himself. And if we are filled with God, it will show in how we love those around us. It's always God's love or Jesus' love in us. But because we abide in the Father and the Son, the love becomes our own love. It's not that God reveals His love apart from us or in spite of us, but He invites us to love even as He loves. So when we return to Him His own love and love Him with the gift of His love, we also love our brother as God has loved Him. And that's the way to see it. So I want to leave you with this, this final passage. We read it already once before. But God shows his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Since therefore we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. What a picture of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for the undeserved love, the unconditional love that you pour out on us so willingly. Lord, forgive us for, for not getting it and for holding back parts of our lives where we don't want your love pressed in. Forgive us, Lord, for having enemies that we don't love, having family members, having even maybe people at this church, fellow members that we don't love. And I pray, Lord, that you would do a work on our hearts. Help us to love you more. Help us to feel your love more so that we can share it with those around us. Lord, help us now. In your name, amen.